Welcome to The Sweat Room, a podcast of Watermark Wesleyan Church. Get it, got it, give it. Here in The Sweat Room, we dive into today's questions about sports and faith. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, Warren Bennis, who was the godfather of leadership, he said, most really effective leaders, they don't begin with the goal to become a great leader. What they get uh, clear on is what they're about and what the work they have is, and they put their head down and they go about accomplishing it. And along the way, they become a leader. They become a good leader because God will bump you into people that will grow you and stretch you. And now here's your hosts, Noah and Bjorn. What is going on, everybody? Welcome to the 39th episode of The Sweat Room. My name is Noah Corson, and alongside my co-host, Bjorn Webb, we are so honored and so pumped to have you today for episode and week two of our leadership series featuring Dan Webster. We're kicking the month of January and the year of 2021 off with a bang. We're featuring four incredible, incredible leaders, one of which is Dan Webster. In 1995, Dan founded Authentic Leadership Incorporated. Since then, he has devoted his life to speaking, writing, and mentoring leaders young and old in the marketplace, parachurch and the church. He has written numerous books, his latest being Unstuck, a story about gaining perspective, creating traction, and pursuing your passion. It empowers leaders to navigate the challenging path to personal and leadership maturity. Guys, I went through this book. It's incredible. You need something that will challenge you to reflect through. Get your hands on this book. And I'll also give a shout out to one of his other books as well. He wrote The Real Deal. Bjorn and I went through this book each. We did it with FCA, and it's an incredible book book. If you're a leader that has younger leaders, that has emerging emerging leaders, or if you're just in a group in general where you need something to have and want to go through something as a group, this is it. The real deal will push you. It'll make you reflect phenomenal books. So I highly encourage after you're done with this episode, get your hands on Unstuck in the Real Deal. Phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal writings by Dan Webster. And if you're new to our podcast, our motto is get it, got it, give it. We're always in every phase of this, always learning, always teaching and always applying. And we like to say here at the SWAT room, everybody has a story. It's just a little bit different platform. The three G's are so important in life, in leadership, and faith. But what we loved about this podcast is getting to know people's stories. You as a listener, you have a story. You matter. You bring something to the table each and every day. And it's a reminder of from the professional athlete to the high school athlete, everybody has a story. And we want to thank you as a listener, wherever you are listening. We're a podcast that is based out of Buffalo, New York. We're just a few miles away from the Bills Stadium. They're having a great year this year. I'm not sure what the future holds for the Bills, but the future is bright. And it's been great being on the sweat room journey. And we just want to say thank you to you as the listener. Thank you wherever you are listening. Maybe you're listening in Australia right now, California. Maybe you're just right down the road in Buffalo. We're going to say thank you. Thank you for listening. We couldn't do this without you. It's been great being on this journey. And if there's any way that we can serve you or you have a guest in mind, feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to feature anybody that is in the sports and faith world. And so before we dive in, I highly encourage you get pen and paper out for this episode. I'm serious. Pause if you have to. Pull over on the side of the road. Get your notes app on the phone. You're doing laundry. You're doing dishes. I'm not sure what you're doing. You're probably on the go listening to this podcast, but I highly recommend listen to this very closely. Dan is going to say some phenomenal, phenomenal things that you're going to reflect upon. And you might have to listen to this at 1.0 speed. I know for me, I usually listen to my podcasts at 1.5. This is a 1.0. 
you're going to want to really reflect on this. And before we dive in, make sure that you check out our social media pages at Watermark Sports on Facebook and Instagram. And at Twitter, it's a little bit different. It's at Sweat Room Pod. And go check out our blog at watermarkwesleyan.com slash blog. So without further ado, here is our episode with Dan Webster. We want to welcome to the Sweat Room, Dan Webster. Dan, thanks for joining us today. You bet. It's great to be with you guys. Dan, so you have so many accolades and it's so many, you've been involved in so much leadership and communication. I'd love just our listeners, for those who don't know about you, just just tell a little bit about yourself and a little about your sports background. I know you're a basketball player and what is what's one of your favorite memories? Well, one of the most painful uh, things I have to say now at my age is I was sitting in a sauna a while back with a guy and he said, hey, you look like you used to be an athlete. <laughs> <laughs> And so, you know, I'm part of that group now, used to be athlete guy, Um, but uh, I was born in northern Minnesota, but from, you know, third grade on, I grew up in Southern California, so I really felt enculturated into the culture out there, Hmm. and um, I grew up in a family that was marginally Lutheran, and uh, I don't remember uh, any presence, significant presence of any kind of faith organization, sports ministry, like FCA or Youth for Christ or Young Life on my campus. Mm. And, uh, you know, really through a miracle, uh, God drew me to himself as a senior in high school. And it was such a significant transformation that it, it, it so deeply impacted me and changed my life. My entire family came to authentic faith after I did. Mm. My sister, my mom, my dad, and my brother. Uh, that it really bothered me that someone didn't do something for students, that there wasn't some presence on my campus that introduced me to the most uh, profound person, the life-changing individual ever, the person of Jesus Christ. But um, so there's a whole side story there, but I went on and um, I played basketball in high school and I went to uh, Cypress junior college and played on a team with Swin Nader, who went on to play at UCLA and for the Lakers. Mm. And we went, uh, one of the things that was true of uh, of the Cypress Junior College team is that Don Johnson was our coach, and he was a former All-American under this uh, well-known coach. You guys probably don't even remember John Wooden, but he did okay <laughs> as a college coach at UCLA. I recognize the name. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, our coach, one of my great memories is our coach hooked us up for with for a game at Pauley Pavilion and this was back when freshmen could not play on the varsity and Bill Walton was a freshman that year Larry Farmer was on that team and we went in 17 and 1 and we got beat by 54 Uh, you know uh, I had to guard a guy named Larry Farmer who uh he was, you know, six, 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 seven. And I got three fouls in the first half because I kept trying to screen him off the boards and he would just go over the top of me. And I can remember saying to the ref after the third, you know, foul, I went up to him and I said, ref, you got to see what's happening here. You got to help me. Mm -hmm. And you know, those guys, they just say, Hey, you got to play the game, son. And they turn away. Mm -hmm. But one of the great moments, you know, in my collegiate history was that Bill Walton put one of my shots about five rows up. He goaltended my shot. (laughs) (laughs) That that was a lot of fun. And uh, it was very obvious that uh, Walton probably got 80% of the rebounds. He would go up and take the ball off the boards and he would be turning 
to kick the ball to half court. Both the guards would go to half court and he'd kick it out. We dropped three guys back and they still must have scored 40 points fast break. They were just, just person by person. They were such superior athletes and they went on to win the national championship the next three years. So, wow. um, so that was a lot of fun. And uh, our coach was wise enough. He called a timeout early in the game and, and, uh, and, you know, UCLA Poly Pavilion, it would, it would be like a Duke's arena, you know, mm. today. I mean, very hostile and they ride the opposing, pl- you know, players and they make fun of you. And so the fans at UCLA are just belittling us. It, it was wonderful. That's awesome. And, you know, our coach called us, called a timeout and he said, listen, guys, we're not going to win this game if you haven't figured it out yet, <laughs> but just stop for a second. And I want you to look around, look where you are. You'll never forget this memory. And he says, look over there. And he points to coach Wooden and he says, uh, he's probably the best basketball coach, not like basketball coach that's ever lived or ever will live. And you have a chance to be in this house. So just be grateful. That's incredible. So that freed us up to lose <laughs> you know, the smile on our face. Lose graciously. <laughs> how, how bad did you guys lose? By 54. Oh, man. And we were, we were 17 and one and wow. we had, uh, you know, Swin Nader was on our team and the next year he went to UCLA and Bill Walton has often said the best center he ever played against was Swin Nader. Wow. So in practice, but uh, wow. you know, I mean, that's, you know, decades ago. And That's, that's awesome. That's crazy. I, I love that story. That's so, that's so wild. 54 points, man. Um, yeah, we got so, spanked. Dan, I've got a question for you. What, what have, and you know, Noah and I, we recently read together um, the book that you wrote called the real deal. But a question I have is, is what have sports taught you about leadership? Oh man. Um, uh, a lot, mm. you know, um, uh, so we're telling you just pick one, just pick one. <laughs> so, um, you know, there was my uh, high school basketball coach could tell a high school in orange County. He was kind of the Bobby Knight of high school uh, coaches, and he taught us what pride was. He taught us what hard work was. I can remember the first day of varsity practice. We're sitting on the baseline, and he stood up. He said, I want you guys to know that we're going to be the fittest fittest team in the county, and we're going to play with pride. And so he taught us a lot about pride um, and leadership. I think as I grew up, I never never, uh, aspired uh, I didn't set as a goal. I want to be a great leader. Mm. And I, and I think, uh, you know, Warren Bennis, who was the godfather of leadership, he said, most really effective leaders, they don't begin with the goal to become a great leader. What they get uh, clear on is what they're about and what the work they have is. And they put their head down and they go about accomplishing it. And along the way, they become a leader. Mm-hmm. They become a good leader because God will bump you into people that'll grow you and stretch you. And so to be around excellent coaches. Um, I didn't, uh, you know, uh, well, I can think of, you know, one illustration that I use all the time that I think I shared in the real deal was, uh, when I was, uh, on a, the staff of a church in Chicagoland, um, a number of the Chicago bears during the glory days of the bears, 1985, you know, attended Willow Creek and Mike Singletary, um, was a really good friend. And one of the things that he taught me was the uh, principle of preparation because I, you go to his house and downstairs he had a weight room and all of his weight machines would only give you credit if you did a full extension. <laughs> I mean, a full rep. And he had like a 42 inch explosion platform that he would do. I can't remember. I think he did like 42 in a minute <laughs> and his goal was to do 60 in a minute. Uh, he had, 
uh, his preparation ethic, he, he knew the opposing defense probably the opposing offense probably better than the quarterback of the team he was playing. Wow. His, <laughs> his, uh, his preparation ethic was legendary. And there are so many pro athletes that have the same ethic, mm. but for him, you know, buddy Ryan gave him the defensive coordinator for the bears gave him full authority to change any play, any set at any time on the field. He had that much confidence in him. And I can still remember watching Mike play his eyes bulging and steam coming out of his mouth. And you'd see him waving and you'd see these big defensive linemen shift in the middle of a play. And uh, he would anticipate that. And I said, you know, Mike, uh, how many, you know, when you would change plays during um, a game, how often were you right? Mm -hmm. And he said, I was right 90% of the time. He said, most of the time, I, I knew the play that they were going to run. And that, you know, you hear quarterbacks today will talk about across the line, they'll hear their linebacker call out the exact play that they're going to call, that they're going to run right then. But, you know, when I asked Mike, I said, Mike, why do you do this, man? I mean, in the weight room, in the field room, on the practice field, why do you spend so much time? And he said, well, it's all about preparation. He said, Dan, you have to understand, I only play anywhere from like nine to 12 minutes of live clock time in any NFL game. And I probably spend 80 to 90 hours preparing for that. Mm -hmm. So you spend 80 to 90 hours preparing for nine minutes. And he said, well, here's the principle of preparation. He said, if you, if I, uh, uh, when I prepare, I raise the probabilities that I can make a difference when I step between the lines. Mm. And I've never forgotten that. And I've uh, so many times I have, you know, preparation is the ball game, mm. uh, whether you in whatever area of life you are, if you're an attorney, it's all about preparation. If you're a doctor, it's about preparation. If you're, you know, in any field at all, if you communicate, you raise the probabilities, you're going to make a, a difference if you prepare it. How well this podcast goes is all about your preparation, you guys. I don't want you to feel the stress, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it is, yeah, right. you know, and so I call that the nine minute moment. And you look at um, like Jan uh, Ignis Paderewski, who was the leader of a country at one time, and he was the finest concert pianist on the planet. Mm. And he would practice the basic, he's the finest concert pianist piano alive on planet earth and he would practice the basic scales for an hour and a half every single day mm. and people would come to him and they would say jan you know we have some uh decisions we've got to make about the future of the country can't you compromise on your on your basic disciplines and he said i can't do it and they would say why he said because if i stop practicing the basic scales for two weeks i will hear the difference in my plane if i stop practicing the basic scales for a month, my critics will hear it. And if I stop for three months, everyone who listens to me will hear how my uh, playing has regressed. So I cannot compromise that core basic discipline. Mm -hmm. And so preparation has been a principle that I think is incredibly important. Wow. And what better person to hear that from than Mike Singletary? There's so many names that you put in there. And I know, especially those 85 Bears, they're regarded as one of the greatest teams ever like in NFL history. So that there that's an incredible just like team that was right there. And Mike Singletary is just a great Christian man. And I'm sure you've got, oh, he's, yeah, Mike's a beast. No doubt about it on every level. He's a, yeah. Yeah. He's a great guy. I, yeah. I remember I went over and did an interview with him one day and I was sitting in his, he was moving his house and I went into his office and you just could not believe the number, 
you know, NFL defensive player trophies are laying over on the carpet and stuff is all this. And uh, mm. yeah, he, he was a, he was a maniac when it came to preparation mm. and um, you know, so many games are won and lost in preparation. Amen. That's so good. So for you, I've, I've heard a few illustrations with your leadership that you, you like to talk about. One of those is a sailboat. Um, I would love for our listeners, for you to explain why sail, why the sailboat leadership metaphor is, is so important to you and, and what it means to you. I don't think I can do that. That's proprietary information. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, for 45 years, I've been thinking about leadership. Uh, and, uh, you keep trying to come, um, Oliver Wendell Holmes was one of our former Supreme Court judges, and he had this great statement. He said, I wouldn't give you a fig for the simplicity on this side of complexity, but I would give you my right arm for the simplicity on the other side of complexity. Mm. And so, uh, uh, and most of us know what that's in life. You know, you go into a new class, you feel overwhelmed, but as you learn, as you go through all the complexity of a topic or whatever, then you get to hopefully simplicity and truth on the other side. So having thought about this for a long time, my simplicity on the other side of complexity when it comes to leadership, because there's 150 definitions of leadership and ways that you can look at this and all of them, I think, have validity. But I've come to the place where I think uh, the metaphor of a sailboat is probably one of the best pictures of leader and leader development. And the reason why I like that is that when you look at a sailboat sitting on the water, there's an above the waterline seen part and there's a below the waterline unseen part. And to me, those two realities illustrate the two lifelong works of leader development. Because above the waterline, you have what I call the work of the work. That's the seen part. The work of the work is this simple principle is that there is a work that has your name on it. And it is up to us to steward our lives, to do the work of discovering who God has made us, what are our passions, what are our interests, you know, what are those things that give us energy as we pursue those, and more than likely, that's the work that has your name on it, and then it's our responsibility to do the work, just not of discovery, but then of developing ourselves Mm -hmm. in order to get better. And so a big part of leadership in whatever vocational role you are is trying to figure out, okay, what are the core fundamentals of this position and how do I identify those? And then how do I master those so that I can move myself ahead professionally and I can move my organization or my ministry ahead, whatever that might be. And so that's work of the work that's above the waterline, but that's only part of it because beneath the waterline is what I call the work of the heart. And that has to do with your character, with your integrity, the condition of your soul. And, um, and, uh, you know, Henry Nowen, you know, one of my heroes, a famous Catholic mystic priest who died a few years ago, one of the few sages of our era, he said, the courageous leader doesn't just blaze the trail into the future. That has to do with work of the work issues. He said, the courageous leader also blazes the trail into his or her own heart. Mm-hmm. And so leader development is always both. And it has to do with work of the work and it has to do with work of the heart. Wow authenticity uh, resonates from both of those areas. If you're going to be an authentic leader, it's, I think it's, it's uh, part of stewarding our lives is we have to figure out if I'm going to live an authentic life, I, I want to touch the world from the place of my talent. 
that's a very important. You know, another one of my mentors, Parker Palmer, has said that most people in the marketplace today who are depressed are not depressed because they have a biochemical imbalance. Mm. He says most people are depressed today because they try to give the world what they don't have. Mm. And so for me to figure out what do I have to give to the world? What are my gifts? What are my interests? What are my passions? And then how do I um, develop myself so that I can bring the full weight of who I am to touch the world in a positive way? And in our faith context, to honor God with all that we do. And so when a person lives inconsistent with who they're made to be, that's a violation of authenticity. Mm. On the other hand, beneath the waterline, you know, we have a worldview. You know, people would say the most important thing you can do is clarify your life philosophy. Well, our faith is our worldview. You know, we believe that God has made us, that he's created us, he's created the world. You know, there's a whole list of theological realities. And, you know, as we follow Christ, there are things that we believe based on his teaching, following God's ways that we should live into, that we should be obedient to. Well, authenticity has a role there, too, because if I say one thing and I believe differently, there's a violation of authenticity there. I'm not consistent. If you are, you know, if uh, uh, if you're an atheist and you live authentically based in your worldview, you can be more authentic to your worldview than a Christian who says they love and follow Jesus and never listens to him, never really prays, never quiets himself, doesn't respond to the correction of God. And so <clears throat> authenticity plays in both above and below the waterline, and there's discovery to be done in both. Wow. And most, I'm telling you, in my work with leaders, most of the problems in leadership are not just skill-oriented or strategy-oriented, it's character-oriented. Wow. You know, I mean, it doesn't take, you know, too much. We don't have to look around too long before we, you know, there's just a longing in all of our hearts. Guy, I wish, I wish we could hire leaders that had integrity both above and below the waterline. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, there's, there's a lot there, and I know personally, I'm going to go play that back just to soak it in again um, and just learn a little bit more. But a question I have, and this is going a little bit off script, so um, just prepare yourself. We're going to try to throw one at you here. Um, but I guess the question I have for you is, like, like, do you believe that leaders, like leadership is something that some people are born with, or do you think it's more something that can be developed and sort of curated over time? Yeah. Well, it probably depends how you define leadership. Uh, and I would say the truth is both end, because there's no question that the book of Romans chapter 12 tells us that there is a gift of leadership. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, and uh, the scripture also says in first Corinthians, you know, 11 and 12, and it talks about spiritual gifts that there are, you know, there's different gifts, there's different impacts, there's different expressions. And so there are some people that have incredible teaching gifts that uh, could be recognized internationally, worldwide. You know, like Charles Stanley Sr., Dr. Charles Stanley, his, his teaching ministry, he has a very uh, large spiritual gift of teaching. And it's had a big impact. We could go around the country and we could find men and women who have a gift of teaching, but the application is to third graders in a class with 30 kids. Mm. And so, you know, there are different dimensions of giftedness. So I think there are some people who truly are uh, spiritually gifted with the gift of leadership. And sometimes that plays out in a small way. Sometimes that plays out in a big way. 
On the other hand, I think most people, I think it is more important. I think is leadership able to be developed? Absolutely, it's able to be developed. And, you know, on a simple end, people would say leadership is influence. And so every one of us walks into our world all throughout our day, and we have an opportunity to influence our spouse, our friends, you know, our children, the people that we bump into every day, the way that we treat them, we can, there is a, uh, there's a wake behind our lives as we move through them. Mm. And so the kind of impact we make says a lot. Now, having said that, um, I didn't know, uh, I wasn't incredibly mindful of the fact that I might have the gift of leadership biblically, like Romans chapter 12, when I first started doing what I was doing. Mm. I cut my teeth doing student ministry uh, during my uh, freshman year in college when the youth pastor that I was working with, he said, I want you to oversee our Niners group. He said, we have five ninth grade kids that I'd like for you to take responsibility for. I said, cool. So I didn't understand leadership. I didn't understand discipleship. I just met because I was a young believer. I just met with those five kids every Friday night. And I grew that to 55 kids without really thinking about growing it. Mm. And then I did the same thing the next year. And so, you know, I, there was just a, a simple principle I learned back then too, is, you know, when you're faithful and little, you might be able to be faithful in much. Mm-hmm. I would never have been able to lead a student ministry of 1800 high school kids if I hadn't have been faithful with those five Niners. Mm-hmm. And I didn't set as my goal, man, I really want to, like I said earlier, the Warren Bennis quote, I was clear on this was the work that God had my name on. And I got about doing it as faithfully as I could. And God all of a sudden brings people into my life that are able to deepen my capacity, challenge my character, deepen my walk with God. And over time, I got better. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you add to that, you know, obviously the uh, hopefully the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the strength that God brings. And then you look for fruit to be born, because <clears throat> I think that if if you're in your calling, I think that there will be there will be a sustaining energy inside of you. I think that other people will benefit. There'll be a blessing. And I think mature people around you will watch you do what you do and they'll give you a thumbs up. They'll affirm your contribution. So. I think that people, no question, can be taught core leadership principles. I think that we are leaders by how we just live fundamentally based on what the truth of of our lives are as we influence people day by day. And I think if we're given responsibility to oversee people, then I think we can develop core fundamentals to be able to do that better. So I think it's a both end. I love it. I love it. That's such such a... as I tell our listeners before every podcast, just to sit and take notes. And like Bjorn said, I, I'm going to go through this again because there's so much amazing things that you're saying right now. It's both and for an authentic leader. And I love that. And, and a talk that yeah, I need ask yourself, I mean, you think, what kind of leader do I want to, would I like to be influenced by? Because I'm guessing that if you guys look in your past, you probably have been beneath leaders mm. who may have been very skilled uh, like you can be coached by a coach who understands whatever sport you're in unbelievably well. And there are a lot of coaches. I got a buddy who is a character coach at a university and their coach um, is incredible with X's and O's, but he is not a guy to develop character in his athletes. And so he's wise enough to have a character coach to build in to care for the boys, you know, where he runs the X's and O's. 
Mm. Um, you don't bump into a, you know, the best coaches. You look at the coach at Indiana right now, the university. What is their big slogan? Um, uh, it is uh, love each other. I think it's uh, L-E-O, University of Indiana. And, all, and these guys, he has built a culture on a collegiate football level, you know, Big Ten level, around the concept of we're going to play because we love each other. And so here's a guy who has tremendous skill above the waterline as a coach and leading his coaching staff, but he has the kind of character he's calling out of his guys. He's calling them to be uh, the right kind of people and to pray, play for the right kind of motivation. And so, you know, you, um, you know, and, but it would be as an athlete, you, uh, you wouldn't want to just play under a coach who's a great person. Mm-hmm. You know, if he can't teach us how to score, if he can't teach me how to hit better or to field grounders better, if he just encourages me and loves me and challenges me to be a better person off the field, well, that's awesome. But we want both, don't we? Yeah. We want a guy who can unite the team, who will uh, face conflict, who will help uh, us learn how to be better people, whether a woman or a man. But we also want someone who can help us learn how to compete on a level. So it's always both that. Yeah, no, I love it. That's so good, Dan. And so, you know, as I, as I hear you, you sharing a little bit about this and specifically when I hear about how, you know, you know, you took this, you know, this group of five Niners, ninth graders, and then over time, then, you know, later in your life, you were leading a youth group of 1800 kids, um, 20 years later. Yeah. 20 years later. I, I can't help, but but think that, you know, okay, how, how did you stay humble in that? How did you not say, look at what I'm doing? How did you continue to say, look at what God's doing? Look at what God's doing. And and we're reminded of this quote that we've heard you say before that says, pride always fills space. Humility creates space. Could you maybe talk to that a little bit of what that quote means and where you got that from? Sure. You bet. You know, I think, um, I think there are two contributing factors to my ability to keep my head on straight um, over the years. I think factor one was that uh, when I was young, uh, I got attacked by a German Shepherd dog. He almost tore my right arm off, which Mm -hmm. I'm fine, thankfully. But it put me into a time of convalescence where I couldn't do anything physically for a while. During that era, when I was 9, 10, 11 years old, my father was a salesman. And he, while I knew he loved me, he traveled all the time. And so as a, as a boy, whenever I felt emotional pain, I, my stress management strategy was that I turned to the refrigerator. Mm. And so hundreds of times when I was young, that happened. So when I went into high school, when I was a sophomore in high school, I went in at five feet five and weighed 185 pounds. And so you can imagine one end of the social continuum I was on. And I went out for every single sport and I didn't make a single sport, but my algebra teacher was the uh, sophomore boys basketball coach. And he said, well, listen, why don't you manage our team and I'll give you extra credit in algebra? Well, I, I could use the extra credit in algebra. So I said, yes. And back then in Southern California, the sophomore team practiced outside on the asphalt basketball court and the JV and varsity practiced in the gym. And um, during the year, as a kid would get hurt or um, would be sick, during practice, I would fill in. I'd run the court. I'd run the floor. At the very last practice, Dr. David Messenger, this was such a profound uh, moment in my life. I, when I go to Catella in Orange County, when I do my nostalgia walk, I end up at this place behind the school. 
on on this very which is now a parking lot but the basketball standards are still there but then you know the rims hang like this and there's no nets on them 40 years later however long it is uh, because uh, dr messenger said hey bag up the balls and come over here so this is the last practice so i all the guys are gone and i talking to dr messenger he says two things number one is i couldn't have done it without you thanks for your help and i said well you know dr messenger thanks i actually enjoyed doing it he said now here's the second thing you got to know you have more athletic ability than any kid on our team. Mm. And I'm standing there and I'm wondering, you know, when's the punchline coming? Why are you being so mean? He says, Dan, uh, I, I've been able to watch you during practice that I didn't see in tryouts. He said, I want to, he said, uh, talk about being politically correct. He said, you just haven't hit your growth spurt yet. It was, uh, he basically said, you haven't hit adolescence yet. You're going to grow up. He didn't say, hey, your athleticism is hidden under 50 pounds of fat. You know, he didn't say that. Sure. And he said, I want to encourage you to go out for basketball next year. Well, between my sophomore and my and junior year, Mother Nature hits me with her wand and I grow up. And so I was co-captain of the team as a junior, and we played for a state championship in Southern California as a senior in high school. And so I went from one end of the social continuum to the other end of the social continuum. But I'm telling you, one of the reasons I've been able to stay level-headed is that there is still a fat little boy, seventh grader, eighth grader inside of me. Mm. And there is a core insecurity that I carry because of my father's travel when I was young that I completely understand psychologically. You know what I'm saying? Mm. I, I understand the dynamics. I have, I'm not angry towards my dad towards that anymore, but I understand that even today as a mature man, when I feel a wave of emotion, my first inclination is to, is to sab it with overeating. Figure that out, huh? Mm. So, A, um, number one, I've just, I've carried a core insecurity in me for that whole time. So that was, the, I think that's the first thing that's kind of helped me keep my head on my shoulders, is that I'm just constantly amazed uh, in God's grace. But the second thing is more the study of Jesus. Mm. Um, because Jesus said, uh, I am with you as one who serves. Mm. And, uh, and he over, you study the Gospel of Mark, and over and over and over again, Jesus is confronting the disease of me in the disciples. I mean, there's even one time when he when he confronts them and he says, what were you guys talking about on the walk to where we are? And they were talking about which one of them was the greatest. Mm. And he kept telling them, the greatest among you shall be your servant. The greatest among you shall be your servant. He brings a child in, the greatest among you shall be your servant. And even in John chapter 13, the night that he's betrayed, he washes the disciples' feet. There wasn't one brother, after three years of walking shoulder to shoulder with Christ, there wasn't one brother that was humble enough to wash the other brother's feet. Wow. How heartbreaking that had to be to Christ. So what does he do? So he takes off his robe and he washes their feet. And then even after the resurrection, what does he do? Does he want worship? After the resurrection in John 21, he makes breakfast for the disciples while they're out fishing. He's got to get bread. He's got to get fish. And so I am with you as one who serves from A to Z. That so motivates me because when I work with leaders who get messed up in their thinking, who have leadership gifts, teaching gifts, communications gifts, blah, 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 whatever you want to say, and God blesses them. 
and their ministry and notoriety continues to grow. Somewhere along the line, they have lost sight of, I am with you as one who serves. And they develop a sense of entitlement. And then uh, the things that they teach apply to everyone else, but not to themselves anymore, even though they can teach them with incredible articulate ability and very uh, compelling things. And so I think for me, there is um, that sense of core insecurity that comes from my childhood. And more importantly, absolute clarity on the number the leader that i am to follow is the one who said i am with you as one who serves and he met emotional needs physical needs he cared for these people all the way through all the way through the resurrection i mean that to me is just that's that's stunning in light of so much of what we see today i love that and i love hearing just even just the leadership principles that come out of just what you're talking about of what jesus has taught you through that uh, I think that's so good. And I think it's so important just to model our leadership after Jesus. Um, and I love how you touched on that just a little bit. I'd love to hear even more if there was things that you've learned from Christ in leadership. Um, but I, I'd also, I, 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 when we were going through the real deal, uh, we were doing it with an FCA group here in Buffalo. Bjorn and I were involved in, in going through your packet. And I highly recommend for our listeners just to get the real deal, it's becoming a more authentic, it's just becoming more authentic in life and leadership. I highly recommend doing that as a group. But in that, there was a quote that was in there, and I, I want you to expand on this as well. And it said, it, it talks about pain, and the and I love how you explained it. And it was a C.S. Lewis quote that you expanded on, and it said, Mind of the fool is pleasure and mind of the wise is in pain. Why is pain the best teacher and what has pain taught you? Yeah. Well, uh, two things. Number one, I, I realized um, when we mentioned a minute ago about humility creates space, pride fills space. Uh, humility creates space within us for the voices of others. It creates space in us for, for the voice of God. It creates space in us for feedback. Mm. And so uh, humility always creates space. Pride fills space. I've worked with leaders who are so shut down inside and uh, they never need to grow. Everyone else needs to grow, but they don't. Humility also creates space around us for the gifts and the talents of other people. So there's a sense of security that I celebrate the gifts and the talents of other people. Mm. I don't feel uh, violated by them. And so that core humility is incredibly important. And now the quote on uh, the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning. The mind of the fool is in the house of pleasure. That's actually not C.S. Lewis. That was Solomon. Out of, mm. uh, that's Ecclesiastes chapter 7. I think it's verse uh, 3, 4, 5 right in there. And... Um, uh, uh, that is a verse that I didn't come to early in life. And in uh, one of the leader development constructs that I've created around above and below the waterline, I talk about, you know, three phases of leader development when you're young and then three phases of leader development that we tend to get around to sometime around between 35 and 50 things, something happens in our lives because for the first run of our lives, most of the time, most of us are concerned about, okay, who am I? What are my gifts? What's my vocation? What's the work with my name on it? How do I identify that? How do I get good at it? And who am I kind of in the pecking order of human existence? 
And so we get about doing that, and there's nothing evil there. We're excited about having a voc- having a clarity on that, our identity and our calling. We get about doing it, and then we bump into challenges that are over our head, and we realize no matter the education I have, there's a whole bunch for me to learn. So we enter the fundamentals phase, and we identify what are those core things I need to learn who are the people that can help me learn those things. And then hopefully after a period of time, we've become competent, capable in that. And then we make our contribution. Mm-hmm. And we're actually are the full weight of who we are and our gifts and talents are touching the planet. And we're making our contribution. And then what I have found in a disproportionately high number of leaders, and it happened to me, is after 20 years kind of above the waterline, really getting good at developing student ministry, you know, I'm leading the largest student ministry in the country, and I walk into the auditorium. I had just turned 40, and I didn't want to be there anymore. And so I awakened to the fact that what had given me life to lead for 20 years now was sucking the life out of me, and I entered a time of inner pain, and I didn't know what had happened to me. So I hit a stop sign. A lot of people hit stop signs. And what's true of a stop sign is that uh, it's trying to get your attention. And for me, it got my attention and I realized, oh my gosh, there is something, there's pain that I'm feeling. Now, how am I going to deal with this pain? Will I become curious or will I curse it? Mm. And when we, when we feel pain, it either opens us to deeper learning and growth, or we get shut down and immobilized. And oftentimes when we first feel the pain, we get kind of dizzy, And but once we catch our breath. And so Solomon says, listen, the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, which means that when you feel that pain, when there's that discomfort, you can go and you can sit at the feet of your own pain, and you can allow Jesus, a man acquainted with your griefs, to draw close to you. And you can actually leverage this and use this to grow in an area of life that maybe above the waterline success doesn't offer. Mm. He says, the mind of the, of the wise is in the house of mourning. The mind of the fool is in the house of pleasure. Wow. Because our knee-jerk reaction as humans is when we feel pain and discomfort is we want to irrigate it. And so how many different Uh, You know, you can walk down the well-worn path to the house of pleasure and you can pleasure your pain away in lots. You can binge watch. You can binge buy. You can get into pornography. You can get into addiction. Mm -hmm. There's all sorts of things in the house of pleasure that now create a second problem. Problem A is I'm feeling pain. What's the source of it? And how can I grow through this? Problem B now is some addiction I have because I managed that pain wrongly. And now you got two things to deal with. And so I think wisdom, you know, over time, and I deal with a lot of leaders, the reason they come to me for a couple of days is that they're in pain. And so, you know, to try to create a safe space for them to be able to sit down and let's, let's become curious about this. Let's try to figure out what's changed in your work world, what's changed in you personally, you know, what age are you at? Uh, and let's try to get to the core of this. Let's become curious about this rather than curse it so that this can be another layer of learning that can help you become more effective in the long run. Because ultimately, like we said earlier, is we want mature leaders above the waterline with their gifts fully developed, and we want mature leaders beneath the waterline with character and integrity. And most of the time, those stop signs in life open us to areas of growth personally that enable us to be more mature, and who we are is how we lead. And so if I bring a more mature person below the waterline into my work above the waterline, everybody benefits. Mm -hmm. 
Wow. Oh my God. Yeah. That, that man, that, that's so good. I might, my mind's swirling right now with just different <laughs> things that I know I, I, you know, I need to take away from this is, you know, as I reflect on my own personal leadership and life and where I'm at and on my personal journey. Uh, so Dan, what, what advice would you give our listeners who are currently trying to find their way and figure sure. out maybe what God's calling is in their life? Uh, that's a fantastic question. And a buddy and I, Randy Gravitt, just happened to write a book to help people with that. And um, I think that there are four steps that a person can go through to help find their way. And in the book, Finding Your Way by Randy Gravitt and myself, we have created a story about a kid named Mark who is a college, a uh, university senior. And the first line of the book is he goes home for, from school. He's a senior in the university. He goes home on Christmas Eve. And the first line of the book, he says, Dad, we have to talk. And his dad is a successful bank president that's loved in the community and really uh, kind of strong-armed his son, Mark, into finance as a career, as a uh, major. Yeah. Well, Mark's a senior in college, and he's not feeling finance. He doesn't want, he doesn't want to do finance. And so he says, he tells his dad that, and his dad's paying the tuition check and is not really interested in writing another three years for another major. So they get into a huge argument. And Mark storms out of the house eventually because of the heat of the argument, drives back to college, sleeps in his car overnight. And the next day, on Christmas Day, he it's 10 to 4, and he's wandering around, and he stumbles into a coffee shop called The Wake Up. And Katie, one of his fellow finance majors, is working the counter. She's a senior also. And she says, Mark, I thought you were going home for Christmas. And he said, I was. But it wasn't a very silent night at my house last night. See what we did there? That's good writing. You know? <laughs> clever, clever. <laughs> clever. Uh, well, what happened? And so he tells her. And she says, I can't imagine that your dad doesn't want to write another check for three years of the university. Well, Mark says, Katie, you're a finance major. Do you actually like it? And of course, Katie's dead in her sweet spot. She has found her way. And she says, Mark, I love everything about it. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, uh, I bought my, uh, I started my first savings account when I was three, bought my first stock when I was 15. My dad laughs at me, Mark, and says, Katie, the first words out of your mouth as a little girl were not mommy or daddy, it was Dow Jones. <laughs> and so uh, he says, well, how did you find that? And she says, uh, man, uh, I guess I have to blame my dad because my father noticed uh, as I as I grew up, my dad would have friends over for dinner all the time. And before we get it from the dinner table, he would say, hey, share with my children what you do for a career. And it was my father that noticed that whenever money, finance, banking, stocks, Whenever a person was in that field, my dad noticed I woke up and I leaned forward. He introduced me to our bank president at age 16. I spent two hours over lunch drilling her with questions. Mm -hmm. And so Mark says, Jesus, sounds like your dad's more Yoda than dad. I'd love to meet him sometime. <laughs> and she says, Mark, he's, he's the head barista and owner of the wake-up of, of our coffee shop. And he's coming to pick me up in 10 minutes. We're shutting down for Christmas dinner. In walks Jim Clark. And Jim Clark becomes Mark's mentor between then and graduation and walks him through the finding your way process. If you want to find your way, you got to look back. You have to look in, you have to look up and you have to look out. And Can you Jim say that one more time. Uh, you have to look 
look back, look back, look in, look up and look out. And the cool thing in the story is that Jim gives Mark assignments around each one of those four steps. And we have a cool way that we heal his relationship with his dad and how Mark finds his way. And so, uh, Finding your way, it's about that. It's about how do I, A, I recognize there is a way. I have been created by God, Psalm 139. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I have talents and uh, gifts and longings wired up in my DNA. And there is a way to discover what that is by looking in. There are things to learn by looking out. There are things to learn by looking up, recognizing, you know, there's a story being written in my life, and then to look out and to try to figure out what is the best application of me in the real world. And uh, that book uh, tells the story, but in the back of Finding Your Way, um, there is a journal, there's actually black edge paging, where if anybody who reads through that story would like to actually work that process, they can go through the process that Jim has taken Mark through to find their way. It's pretty cool. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the book's been used by high schools and colleges around the country. And um, just as far as four simple steps, those are, those are the steps that I would walk someone through if I was going to help them figure themselves out. That's so good. And, and I want to just, just for you, just to repeat those four steps, because I think there's so much that you said, and I think look back, look in, look up and look out. They're so essential for finding your way. Those, and those are four that I, I will take in and yeah. reflect. Well, you look back, you look back. I look back at my family of origin. Mm. I look back at the things that interested me before I was 10. I look, I look, there's all sorts of data that we can draw from our personal history. Then I look in, I pay attention to the things that are interesting to me. And then I look up recognizing that God, God is able to direct my life. And if I surrender to him, if I listen to him, if I trust spiritual people around me, there are things I can learn. And then once I collect all that data, if you, if you have data um, from life experience and from relationship and family of origin, and if I have people who I can confide in, then I can create a way. And there's actually a matrix in the book where you can actually list the things that you've discovered about yourself and then the options of the application of you. And then there's a methodology to assess which one of those potential expressions of you vocations are the best application of you. And so, and that's part of looking out. And so it's a, it's a little more complicated than that, but in essence, that's man, you know, it's, it's a righteous process. There's no doubt. Yeah. Well, and, and what I love about that is just that it's such a reminder to me and to all of our listeners and to Noah that every single one of us has a purpose and has a calling. Every single one of us has something that God has gifted us uniquely with, that this is a gift that you can give to those around you, to our world, to your communities, to our society. You just have to find it. And it does. It takes a little bit of searching. It takes a little bit of reflection. It takes a little bit of creating that space with humility so that people can speak into your life, so that you can hear from God what that is. Mm. And that man, that's such a, such, such a powerful reminder. And so thank you so much for sharing that. And Dan, just as we kind of wrap up here today, how can people find you, your work and the books that you have written? Because I know, you know, for Noah and myself is, you know, the, the one book of yours that we have both read, um, was very influential on us. And I would love to be able to share some of that with our listeners. 
Well, danwebster.com. That's pretty easy. There we go. Dan Webster. It's good. You don't have a complicated name. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. That, and uh, yeah, that's the website that's, you know, basically, well, um, you know, it's, it's more uh, about presenting who I am than it is about promoting what I do. I, mm. you know, I'm just trying to, you know, be obedient and let who God has made me and my experiences hopefully touch the planet in a meaningful way. Dan, you're, you're really, you're being really modest right now because the influence that you have not only around just around the leaders that you speak into, but it's, it's across the country, like your latest book and around the world, you'll, you'll do events all around the world. Your, your latest book on stocks. One of the, one of the guys that wrote one of your forwards is Mark Miller. Who's involved with Chick-fil-A Clint hurdle, who, who does stuff with the Pittsburgh pirates. And I, I, I recognize him as a Colorado Rockies fan. So I love Clint hurdle. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. These are guys who, that you have impacted through your writing as well. And at one point you had the biggest youth group in, I think what in the world, my dad was involved in, in your youth group for a little bit in Chicago. So I just want to say thank you as a leader and all the, all the people that you have influenced. I, I know when we went through your book, one of, one of the quotes that you used in the, in the beginning, and I've often said is John Maxwell leadership is influence and you have influenced so many. So thank you. Well, That's kind of you to say, you know, uh, Randy Gravitt has been, uh, kind of my co-author and very close friend. He is a, he was a leadership coach for the pirates with Clint mm. and he's been in a small group with Mark Miller, the head of leadership for Chick-fil-A for 10 years. I met Mark before I ever met Randy. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, Randy has, Randy's an animal <laughs> and uh, he has, he has a, uh, leadership ministry called integrate leadership, but Randy He was a co-author of two books. And I think that he and I, uh, do an emerging leaders program for fellowship of Christian athletes. Mm. And, uh, so I, Randy has, was able to, we, we both have had a lot of influence, but he's the one who knew Clint and he's the one who got Mark to write that. So I got to give credit to Randy. And if I didn't, then he probably would never talk with me, <laughs> but, uh, Okay, so you asked me one last thing. Yeah, just, just, do you have any final thoughts or remarks for our listeners? Well, um, okay, I'll give you this morning. Uh, one of my disciplines uh, is I try to lead my life from quiet, and I try to do what uh, Parker Palmer said is listen to your life, like you mentioned we were on it just a minute ago. Um, and so I, you know, I try to. Uh, lead my life from quiet and to and to give God an opportunity to speak to me and to listen to my life each morning. And I read through the God. I'm always reading through the Gospels, um, just one after the other after the other. And so this morning I was in uh, Matthew chapter eight, and uh, in my journaling kind of methodology, I'm always looking for just a few phrases or something that jumps out at me that I can th carry throughout the day. And this morning, right at the beginning of right after the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus comes down, there's a crowd, and there's a leper that comes up to him and says, you know, if you're willing, would you heal me? And I was, you know, Jesus just delivers one of the finest sermons in the history of humanity. And there's this guy that is a leper, which obviously, if you know anything about them, no one got around them, no one touched them. And Jesus sees this guy, he listens to this guy, and he reaches out and he touches this guy, and he says, you know, the guy says, if you're willing, and Jesus says, I am willing, you know, and heals him, touches him and heals him. And I was struck by that phrase, I am willing. 
And so I sat in that this morning for a while, and I thought, hmm, I am willing. What an incredible thing it is. I mean, I can feel the emotion even in me right now. Hmm. To have a God who is willing, mm. who, who sees us. I mean, you could draw all sorts of comparisons of our leprosy, of our sin, and who doesn't run from us, who draws near to us who hears us when we call out. This guy had a need. He said, man, I just, I'm just so tired of being left out and ostracized and physically afflicted. And guy, if you're willing, what do you like? I mean, he, he didn't know. He may have heard on the fringe the Sermon on the Mount, but he didn't really know. What, who, what is the heart of Jesus? And for Jesus to say, I am willing, man, that's a heck of a thing. And I, so I wrote down this morning, you know, I had my, I am, you know, my God is willing thing. And I had, I think there were eight requests of people that I said, God, you know, it would be so great if you were willing, you know, because this guy, a buddy of mine, who is the president of a company, um, you know, last week, uh, his number one guy committed suicide mm. because he got COVID and he got scared. And uh, so obviously the ripples of that. And, you know, this man who I love, who's my friend, he needs something. He, he, needs, he needs Jesus' touch. And it, Lord, if you're willing today, would you extend your help to, to him? And so I just had like eight different needs that I was, I was leaning into the truth that God is willing. And because of that, I can request it of him certain things. And so, you know, who, wherever any of us are right now, I mean, to me, I was just reminded this morning that the greatest leader in history, you know, A, sees us, loves us, hears us, is willing, moves towards us. Uh, you know, if you're willing, I am willing. That's awesome, man. You know, we serve a God today that's willing. That's wow. good. That That is so good. And Dan, I thank you so much for sharing that, that you just, you know, got to sit in this morning. I, I'll definitely take that with me, as, and I hope our listeners do, that our, our God is willing. So thank you so much for being with us today, Dan. We appreciate oh, it's it. Been, you bet, you guys. It's been a joy. Thank you, Dan, for joining us today for an incredible conversation. And I highly encourage all of our listeners, go back and take, like, I mean, you might have to listen at 0.5 speed to take some of that in. Bjorn, what were some of your reflection points? What did you take away personally today? Yeah, man, there, there was a lot. I'm just going to, I'm just going to stick with this, that this episode for me was, it was a stop sign. Mm. As, as he mentioned, this was a time I could, I could stop and reflect. And the, the, the Solomon quote that, that he said, that, you know, mind of the fool is pleasure. Mind of the wise is in pain. Mm. That, that really struck me that when we have pain, when we're in pain, when we experience pain, that's an opportunity where we can sit, reflect, and move forward. Hmm. And that has been what this year has been, the yeah. past year. It has been, there's been so much pain. But in that pain, we can, the way we respond to that can be so good. Hmm. And so that that's a little what I took away from it is... is this is this this pain that I feel right now, as we all feel. There's there's been a lot of pain from this past year. Is 
there can be so much opportunity from that. Mm. And so that, that's just one for me that I took away. And there's, there's so many others and I'm definitely going to, you know, <laughs> go over my notes and re re listen to it. But what about, you know, what was something that really struck you and that really affected you personally? Mm. There's, there's a lot. Um, I think honestly there, I could go through so many, like you said, there's between that. Uh, I love how you talked about how humility creates space. Mm. Um, but I think for me, it comes down to the, of, of what, whatever your work is, it's both and of work of the work and the work of the heart. Mm. It's both. And, and that, that is so true. Whatever you are doing, you as the listener, what is your both and, and how do you evaluate that? What is your process of looking into that? Mm. The L's that he said, look back, look in, look up and look out. And that's how I'm going to finish that. I, I think we both could expand on that for a while. But for me, those are the reflection yeah. points where I was like, wow. If, if you haven't done that yet for the year 2020, if you haven't looked back, looked in, and you look up and you look out. If you haven't done that yet, take five minutes to do that now. And you may need more than five, but we all have at least five minutes that we can mm. give to this. Reflect on that. Reflect on this past year as we're in January reflect on what's happened and and think about what that means for you and just sit that's good thank you dan for joining us and make sure to get your hands on the real deal and unstuck and any other writings that dan has done they're phenomenal so excited for you to get your hands on those and what a great episode and next week everybody you do not want to miss next week's episode with brad gray brad runs walking the text phenomenal phenomenal source he's got a sports and faith background as well you guys are going to love this episode he's a leader one of the best communicators i've ever met here's an excerpt of that episode and so in order to help people do that and to understand how do you you know rightly handle the word of god context is king uh, context is queen context is the ace context, i mean context <laughs> is it because it was written for a reason the, the bible was not just dropped out of heaven it was written to real people in real places in a real time with real circumstances thanks for listening to the sweat room sports and faith podcast we hope you enjoyed if you'd like to stay connected with us you can find us on facebook and instagram at watermark sports on twitter at sweat room pod and our new blog at watermarkwesleyan.com slash blog until next time get it got it and give it Thanks for listening to The Sweat Room, a podcast of Watermark Wesleyan Church. 